Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Once Bitten podcast. Dropping this one from on location in Madeira. We are here with the fam, ready for it all to begin. Going to be here for the next couple of weeks. So if you are coming over to the conference, please make sure you come and talk to one of us, reach out. I'll be signing some books at one of the, uh, the book signing sessions there. And uh, yeah, we'd love to come and hang out with any of the plebs that are looking for more information about Bitcoin or about traveling with your family, unschooling, self-directed education. I'll be on a few panels. There's a kid's area, there's a kid's stage. We've got kids curating the interviews and kids hosting the panels. And Lauren is going to be hosting a panel about the state education system and another panel talking about um, world schooling, unschooling with Sylvia, who's been on this show, who's setting up uh, with her husband an unschooling community here for Bitcoiners and freedom lovers on Madeira. So if you haven't FOMO'd in, you've still got plenty of time. Check the flights. You need to get a flight to Funchal. That's F-N-C or F-U-N-C-H-A-L. They're on Madeira. Use the code BITTEN to get a discount on those tickets. Looking forward for all of this to start. And today's guest has flown in all the way from California. Oh my goodness. Yes, he has. And he's super grateful. And he's super pumped. And it's Eric, Eric Stacks, the guy that started talking about Bitcoin, his meandering thoughts and just putting them on film and putting them on Bitcoin Twitter uh, to help other people understand what's going on. He's educating people in his own special way about Bitcoin. And it's beautiful to see. And it's beautiful to see that just by this one small action that he's been doing, putting himself out there, uh, he got an invitation. Andre reached out and said, dude, come across, come across to the island and come and talk about you know, your passion, which is one, farming cannabis, legally, of course, as we talk about in this interview, and uh, spreading education about Bitcoin. So really looking forward to meeting you, Eric, and I hope this is a great travel episode for those people that are getting across to come to the conference. Make sure you're stacking stats, guys. Please make sure you reach out to your local Bitcoin-only company. In the US, you can use Swan Bitcoin, and in and across Europe, you can use Relay. That's spelled R-E-L-A-I. I know the Relay team are gonna be here. Julian's gonna be on stage making some announcements, talking about um, peer-to-peer versus exchanges. So this is gonna be a, a really, one of these topics that's gonna just follow us out through the next five to 10 years and beyond. Make sure you are using a coin join service if you want to up your privacy. That's wasabiwallet.io. Just get across there, download it, make your first wallet, run some sats through, coin join by default, and please make sure you take self-custody. Bitbox 02, Bitcoin only hardware edition. Go see the team here in Madeira. Tell them I sent you. Tell them code BITTEN gets them a discount. Mempool.space is the place to go to check out what's going on in the mempool and on the blockchain and the current transaction fees. Orange Palap are going to help you find events and Consensus Network are going to help you with your education. 
then go check out plebwork.com. Here's Eric. Eric, good to see you, brother. Good to good to see you in, in the workplace. I'm assuming yeah. that's not that's not a a virtual background. No, this is uh this is the workplace. This is a licensed cannabis farm in Northern California. I love um, it, man. I love, it's so surreal to see you sitting and being able to. I've been watching your videos. I love your videos, and uh, it's nice to see you sat right there at work, where I'm used to seeing you. So yeah, it's cool. But Lauren, she uh, she asks the first question on most shows. Uh, nice. So she's gonna fire uh, the first question across at you. Cool. Why do you grow cannabis? Why do I grow cannabis? That's a very good question. Um. So when I was a young child, I don't know, probably younger than you, I was five years old and my parents divorced. My parent, my mother got remarried a few years later to a psychiatrist and he was a prescribing psychiatry psychiatrist. He would prescribe pharmaceuticals to inmates at a prison system in Southern California. And so at a very young age, I was exposed to synthetic drugs or more so modern day drugs. And intuitively, I had an aversion to these, I don't know, new modern chemical cocktails. And it started, I started to question um, the framework and the legality in our world and like, why is it that alcohol is legal, but cannabis is illegal? Why is it that you can go and get a cigar or a pack of cigarettes, but you can't go and smoke this plant? And so, yeah, at a young age, I developed an affinity for cannabis and a mistrust for the system at large because I started to see the side effects of what were supposed to be these safe and modern and like medical industry supported drugs. Um yeah, and so I think that cannabis is a very benign, powerful medicine relative to all of the other medicines available in the world. And so for me, it's been a passion uh, using cannabis and cultivating cannabis. So yeah, it's kind of been my contribution to bring something that I believe everyone should have access to to the marketplace, if that makes sense. I want to know how Lauren knew that was cannabis you were sitting in front of. That's that's my question. <laughs> because he said he it was a cannabis song. So I was like, all right, let's go with that. Yeah, the short answer would be is, is I think that cannabis is very medicinal. And I think that it's a it should be an option available to people who want to use it. Or for recreation, honestly, for that matter. I'm kind of a freedom and freedom-minded individual. I think that as long as you're not causing harm. You should be able to do whatever you want, really. So, like, is cannabis good for you? Is it like kind of like a medicine, or it is considered to be? Yeah, it's it's it is a very so. There's a lot of cases of people healing cancer with cannabis. There's a lot of people uh, cases where people use cannabis to deal with the discomfort around like being terminally ill. Um, and then there's just, I don't know, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people globally who use cannabis just because it generally makes you feel good without a lot of the side effects that other euphoria inducing substances come with. You know, people who drink alcohol, like if I ever drink alcohol, the next day my body hurts like really bad. It's quite taxing on the body. 
And so, yeah, cannabis is it's very medicinal and it seems to not cause that much harm on the body. So as far as a substance to ingest, to alter how you feel, I feel it should be an option in the market. And I think it should be legal in every state and every country. Uh, and I don't think it's very dangerous. Like, here's the interesting st statistic. There is zero known cases of anybody in all of known history overdosing on cannabis. You, can, you can't say that for very many things. I mean, there yeah. are people who have drowned from drinking too much water. So... You know, you're definitely a young individual. I would say you don't need cannabis for many, many years. But if you ever want to try it as you're an adult, you know, it's uh, I don't think it's that dangerous. Like the world seems to think. How would you best explain to uh, a 13 year old how it makes you feel or the effect it has on your body? And I know that's personal for different people, but uh, it, yeah. In your experience and in like uh, having dealt with the, the people that, uh, that you deal with? Um, that's a challenging question to answer because it is very subjective and it's different for everybody. And the effects from cannabis, I think, are very, I don't know, large and, and, and how how much it can affect an individual because you're ultimately changing how you feel. You're changing your consciousness. And if you feel differently, then you think differently. And it does have this like deep permeating effect and, and how, and how it affects us. And so what I think that for me, what cannabis does, cannabis is an enhancer in some ways it kind of brings me more into my body and more in alignment with myself in some interesting way. I think that very commonly what I see with people who consume cannabis is that it strengthens their ability to empathize. You know, there's this, uh, there's this common understanding that cannabis can make you paranoid. And I think that that paranoid state of being or that feeling is actually like a tsunami, an influx of like becoming consciously aware of how your actions affect the world. It's that empathy where like if I go a long period of time and I don't ingest any cannabis in any capacity and then I do, I'll get hit with that like tidal wave of, yeah, empathy or that feeling of being like, oh, I. I was a little too harsh, a little too rude, or maybe I said these things that I shouldn't have said to my friend or my wife or whatever. And so it is, it does have this modulatory effect where it is very humbling. It's very centering. It's calming. A lot of people use it to relax. A lot of people use it to combat anxiety. Um, you know, and interestingly enough for me too, there's times where cannabis can like get me up and going so it's not just like sedative i feel like cannabis has a modulatory effect and it can zoom you in or zoom you out it's like it's it's like a calibration in a sense it's like a recalibrating thing where like we can get in these little feedback loops and rutted or stuck in a cycle of like how we think about and how we interact with the world and cannabis can reset that in some interesting way yeah so it's kind of a long jumbled answer there but yeah <laughs> no i love it all right any more questions no no not now Okay. Nice. Well, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
because right yeah lots lots to get into lots to lots to chat about but i guess let, let's keep it let's keep it here at the moment with, with cannabis uh because the the plebs love learning about different people's lives and, and you know what they do and and how they do it describe the farm here what what's going on is is this a place in which you are employed or is this a place that you run what's the setup uh, so the the complete answer would be uh i'm a licensed cannabis farmer i'm a professional cannabis farmer um the person who owns this facility it's a couple it's an old canadian couple that left the they retired they retired they're from the oil and gas industry and they left texas and came to california in 2016 to be part of the new green rush if you will and I met them because I owned the property directly across the street, which I bought in 2016. And I got permitted by the county in record times. So I was one of the first permit holders in all of known history in Humboldt County. And, and then I received a state license in the beginning of 2018 at the very beginning of recreational cannabis or legal recreational cannabis in California. And so I was one of the first state license holders. Um, and I farmed that property for two years and I sold it. And since then, I've pivoted my business model and I do more of a consulting or farm management service. Um, and a lot of that had to do with falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and getting a real lesson in counterparty risk as far as political risk and regulatory risk. And yeah, just yeah, owning that property at a house, 10 acres with the house. And seven acres raw with a ten thousand square foot cannabis farm on it. Um, and I thought it was my dream come true. The fact that I achieved the purchase of this property and the acquisition of all the licenses was quite a monumental achievement for me. And it quickly turned into something I needed to get out of. And so, yeah, I sold the property, and now I do farm management services. And so, when this gentleman got approved for his permit, he contacted me and asked me to come help him design the facility and, and put it all together. And so that's what I've been doing for the last two years. So I designed the whole place. Uh, yeah, set up all the SOPs, then cultivating the crops, lining them up with the you know legal licensed distributors. Yeah, so it's been, uh, been a fun ride. Yeah. Damn. Okay. So how did you become the first? You said you were the first person? Like uh, you got One it in record time? One of the first. Yeah, yeah, I was just in the right place at the right time, you could say. Um, in 2015, Jerry Brown, the governor of California at the time, signed into effect a, a Medical Marijuana Safety Regulations Act. And that put in place the framework for licensing in anticipation for the state of California, the people of the state, to vote into effect recreational adult use. So they're going to make it state legal. Um, it was already medically legal but like you had to have a nonprofit, and you had to have a medical recommendation from a doctor so it was this gray market if you will and so when he signed that document into effect it put into place the framework for the counties to permit all cannabis activity or or not permit some counties in california said they don't want any cannabis activity of any sort and so the counties that wanted the cannabis activity they would permit and it's property dependent and once you were permitted by the county come 2018, then the state was going to start issuing licenses. 
So I just happened to be in, in Northern California in Humboldt County, and I was cultivating at the time and the stars aligned so that the opportunity was there. So if I, you know, if I put all my ducks in a row and I achieved what was seemingly the unachievable that I was able to purchase a property, get it permitted by the county and then get it licensed by the state. And so I did. And in 2018, when the state started issuing their first licenses in January, I think it must have been like January 10th. It was like 10 days of state licensing uh, it, uh, happening. And I received my state license. I was like the 600th cannabis business in California to get a license. Yeah. All right. Why then? Why did you have to sell out of it? What was the thought process? So I had, there was, um, so the, the county put into effect their land use ordinance, which specifies property setbacks, what, what kind of soils you could be on, how close you could be to a creek or a stream or a road or a bus stop or a school. And so in working with the planning department at Humboldt County, I purchased this property specifically to acquire a cannabis permit and put this cultivation on the property. And after getting permitted and through the permit process, actually, I received an enormous amount of blowback from an upset, disgruntled neighbor and a neighboring city. And so getting caught in the crossfire in this in a feud between a neighboring parcel, an older gentleman, uh, basically an entire city, local, small group of politicians. It's a small little city. Um, and their issues with the county and the county approving this activity, which actually the 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 contention and the the fight over my permit is what got me permitted so fast because there was a lot of pushback. It kind of forced the county to either approve or deny me. And so as soon as I got approved, six months later is when I received my state license. In the midst of all of that, the county started changing the land use ordinance. And so I basically spent all of my money, all of everything that I had earned for in my entire life. Like I'm literally all in on this and this this business endeavor and this house, this parcel. I must have been 33 years old at the time. And in achieving what was seemingly like the unachievable, this is the apex, the climax of my life. You know, here I am, you know, coming out of, I don't know, the the prohibition days and kind of getting, you know, got a lot of shit in high school for my affinity for cannabis. And I lived an unconventional life and it was kind of a challenge in a lot of ways as a result. And there I was licensed and permitted and the county's changing the laws and the fate of my property and all of my money is now up in the air. And so I don't know if I'm going to be stripped of this permit, which is going to reduce the equity of my property significantly. I mean, it would have essentially reset me financially. And so at the time also, it was the first purchase, first real estate purchase that I had ever made due to being a cannabis producer, even though I was 33 years old and I've been productive and I've made, I don't know, enough to survive, enough to purchase a, a, a modest home, I couldn't get a traditional mortgage because I produce cannabis. It's a schedule one drug as far as the federal government is concerned. Even if it's legal on a state level, I can't get an FDIC insured financial institution to loan me any money. So I had a local private loan and a significant amount of the property uh, I, I was I was required to put a significant down payment to purchase the property. 
So I had a lot of equity in the property that I'm watching oscillate. And in moments, I'm like, this is going to be fantastic. I'll be able to work and own this business and own this property for the foreseeable future. And then 10 minutes later, I'd have a thought where it's like, ah, they're going to strip my, my permit from me and I'm going to lose everything. And so, yeah, it was just a real lesson in counterparty risk. And so, yeah, I had to wait until the fate of the permit was clear. And once it was, it was after about a year of, dude, and I'm also watching the local politicians make decisions for how the whole industry is going to operate. And it was just extremely challenging for me to, to stomach all of that. Um, yeah, and due to the fact that this was my first property, I now had a huge incentive to understand the boom-bust cycles within real estate and the monetary policy and what causes all of this stuff to happen. And so in late, mid-2017, mid I started to go down the rabbit hole on YouTube and just devour everything that I could as far as, you know, the all of the history of money and the boom bust cycles. And that led me to Bitcoin at the end of the year. And so 2017, when Bitcoin was like $16,000, $17,000, I had just spent multiple months really thinking long and hard about real estate cycles. You know, I was 22 years old or so, 20 years old in 2008 when the great financial uh, crisis happened. And so, yeah, at that time, I didn't understand what was taking place. And now I'm in a position where I needed to understand what what causes this stuff. And and as a result, yeah, and understanding Bitcoin and understanding commoditization, the political risk involved in owning this property, I started to conclude that there was a first mover disadvantage because there was all this regulatory unclarity, even though they say, hey, these are the rules and we're going to license you. The dust hadn't settled. And so. Yeah, pivoting out of that business was a good move. It was hard to accept the reality that I needed to change what I, you know, my plans. Um, yeah, but just in grappling with all of that um, and being in such limbo, it was this like purgatory-esque like period of my life. I was so uncomfortable. I didn't smoke any weed. I didn't do anything other than clean this property up and get myself in position to sell it. It was like every waking moment of my life for two for I don't know, 18 months was about getting out of this property so I didn't lose all my money. Damn. So when I got this property, yeah, it was an enormous relief. Yeah. And did that went all fine in the end? You got what you it wanted did. for? Yeah. And when I if I when I tell the story, if I get into details, I just basically say like it, it was a it was a two-year time in my life full of consecutive miracles. It was like miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle from the purchase of the property to the acquisition of the permits to the two two years of farming, the crops that I pulled, the weather, all of it was just a bunch of miracles. So it worked out well and I did get out of there. And actually someone else bought the property and they're still farming it today. So yeah, it's been, it's a good story. Yes, it is. Well, I mean... I don't know where, like the, the the health benefits of cannabis. Let's go back to that because you were talking to to Lauren about uh, how it can help people. Um, I once went down. I was taken down the rabbit hole of uh, Rick Simpson oil. I, I think uh -huh. I'm remembering that correctly. Oh uh, yeah, you know that pretty deep. Yep. I'm guessing. Uh huh. That was blowing my mind, and the reason I was taken down that rabbit hole is a you know an extended family member had become sick with cancer, and I was just like. 
is there really nothing? I mean, like, this is it. It's either chemo or death. I mean, how did we get here? Like, that doesn't totally. make sense. So do you want to explain to people that are listening um, what what that is, the Rick Simpson oil? And I don't even know what the, the medical term would be for it, to be honest with you. So the Rick Simpson oil is a hash oil extracted from the plant. It would be considered like a whole plant extract where if you make like a distillate, you can put cannabis oil through a distillation process and you can distill down and create basically 90 to 95% THC oil. That is going to be like an isolate. You're isolating one of the compounds within the plants. With the Rick Simpson oil, it's a whole plant extract. And so you're getting all of the oil, which is going to have THC, all the different THCs and all the different CBDs in the plant, plus all of the terpenes and other constituents that do have a physiological effect on our body. The cannabis plant will produce terpenes like limonene, for example, is a terpene that's in lemons and essential oils. People will like vaporize essential oils to get these terpenes and, and plant essences. And so cannabis, depending on the variety, will have different plant essences or terpenes within it. And so with a complete plant, a full plant extract like Rick Simpson oil, you're basically removing the oil from the plant and you're putting it into a form that's digestible. And what's special with a lot of the compounds within cannabis uh, amongst like polypore or medicinal mushrooms that you can make teas or extracts with, there are constituents, chemicals, molecules, or molecules that perform a process called apoptosis. And the process of apoptosis is where a molecule can move into a cancer cell and it can kill a cancer cell without damaging the cells around a cancer cell or without damaging any other healthy cells within the body. A lot of times it'll have to do with the pH of the molecule um, that allows it to essentially move through the cell membrane barrier and get into a cancer cell, but not affect a healthy cell. And so, yeah, there is endless cases of people using Rick Simpson oil or just basically cannabis extracts and healing stage four terminal cancers because the the oil will go into your body it'll move through your body and it'll attack the cancer cells and leave everything else alone pretty incredible really it's wild it's completely wild and obviously he's been canceled as a quack goodness knows how many times uh and i remember totally he, he was teaching people how to do it at home just with a rice cooker and i can't remember the there's some kind of liquid that he was using to mix it, which would extract the... Uh, yeah, probably an alcohol. Mm. Alcohol. So you have water-soluble constituents and you have fat-soluble constituents. And that's going to be with most, with all medicinal herbs, including mushrooms. And so you could take plant material and you can make a tea with it and you're going to pull out anything that's water-soluble. But you're not going to pull out the oil-soluble constituents and so to get those out you need to use a solvent that will dissolve the oil and pull it out from the from the biomass or the plant material how 
How do we get more people aware of this? And I mean, this is obviously a huge part of your work. You must have seen and heard some yeah. incredible stories. Yeah, I think that as more as time goes on and the further we get away from prohibition, the more people become aware of it. You know, in the 30s, the reefer madness era, the United States government, full blown, full stop in collusion with oil companies and pharmaceutical companies and whatever backroom diabolical fiat crap took place, they really promoted this lie that cannabis is this hardcore drug that causes you to behave crazy and do crazy things. And, you know, my dad used to tell me when I was a kid, he's like, you know why I don't smoke weed, Eric? And I would ask him, okay, why, dad? And he goes, it makes you stupid. I don't know that it makes you stupid. You know, I'm not sure that that's actually the case. And so I think as time goes on and the more we're exposed to great people in our society who publicly use cannabis, I think the more that stigma goes away. And this, you know, the more cases there are of people, you know, getting off of gnarly pharmaceutical drugs and they use cannabis. I know so many people who use cannabis and don't do other drugs who who have like had, you know, broken free of gnarly addictions to opiates or alcoholism specifically. And they just smoke a bunch of weed, which I mean, is really quite benign. It really is. Um, yeah. So I think it's just it's going to take time. You know, I do get a little blowback on Twitter. The only blowback I ever get is someone will shit on me for smoking weed. And it's like, right. this, you know, have you listened to anything that I said? You could call me an idiot for saying something dumb because every once in a while, I'll definitely say something dumb, right? But like, am I stupid because I smoke weed? I don't know about that. And so I just think there's just an old stigma. You know, every once in a while, somebody will say, you know, I just got a comment the other day. It was a nice comment. This guy says, Hey, I really like what what Eric has to say, but I really don't like all this drug crap. And, you know, <laughs> if I had the opportunity to politely have a conversation with this individual, I would ask them, like, do you drink coffee? Do you take any anti-nausea medication when you're on a boat, for example? Uh, have you ever sprained an ankle and taken some Advil? Like these are all chemical compounds that hit receptors in our brain. And so I would say that cannabis is a drug like nicotine or caffeine is a drug. You know, caffeine hits the adenosine receptor in our brain and it fills that receptor so that the adenosine, which is naturally produced in our body, doesn't. And so it artificially fills that receptor so that we don't feel tired. Well, we have cannabinoid receptors in our brain. And so the cannabis hits a receptor in our brain and changes how we feel. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a it, thing that I change over time. Have you ever philosophized over why humans, uh, you know, seek that, 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 you know, to change their state? Uh, you know, we, we do it with alcohol, typically the, the, the most used drug, probably, I would say. Yeah. Up there. And that is to change someone's state, uh, you know, weed, any kind of psychedelics. And I suppose, yeah. is cannabis considered as a psychedelic or not? Uh, yeah, I think generally speaking, it would be considered a psychedelic. I think that where you would draw the line from what is non-psychedelic to what is psychedelic, I guess that's subjective and it's up for debate. You know, like 
I definitely have like a little cycle within my day because of caffeine. Like I'll wake up in the morning, I'll drink some caffeine. I, you know, I'll get out of first gear, as I like to say, and I'll get to highway speed or full speed an hour or two later. And come the afternoon, I'll kind of crash a little bit. And my cognitive function will like slow down. The caffeine is affecting my consciousness. It's affecting how I think and how I feel. And so I don't know. I guess I'd have to look into what really what, what is like Webster's definition of psychedelic. I would say mm -hmm. that that cannabis is going to be a psychedelic much more so than caffeine would be. Um, but as to why people. Why do people for all of known history. A desire to change their state of consciousness or why yeah. do we consume things that change how we feel? Because it is all of throughout all of history, right? When you start looking into For all of known history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um and are we the only animal? No, actually, I think that there's other animals who will they will eat fermented foods and get drunk. Uh I I've heard I think apes, you know, Terrence McKenna. His he has the stoned ape theory. He believes that we evolved from apes that started eating psychedelic mushrooms and the psychedelic mushrooms caused their frontal lobe to evolve. And it allowed them to think. And more depth and put together more process. I might be botching that, but the theory is essentially that apes started eating these psilocybin these mushrooms that have psilocybin in them and that evolved their consciousness and kind of changed the direction of that tribe of apes and sent them towards being homo sapiens. And so I think, so I like the simulation theory that the simulation theory is essentially if you look at virtual reality or video games, today 2024 planet earth if you fast forward out far enough it's logical to think that at some point we will have the technological capabilities to create a reality a simulated reality that is indistinguishable from base reality if that's the case then it is not probable that we are actually in base reality and so I heard that many years ago, you know, there's a YouTube clip. You could watch it on YouTube. Scientists talk about simulation theory. It's a famous clip. And I like that. And I think of life as being like a video game. And I think of it because for a multitude of reasons. Um, first off, I think with all religions or most humans intuitively know there is a difference between our physiology and our consciousness that and we have stories that get passed on about how we come from somewhere. We're here. We live this life. And when we die, we go somewhere. And so it kind of is like, well, did we in some alternate universe sit down at some tv in some living room and decide to play this video game of life that is daniel and eric here on planet earth whatever right and so that makes a lot of sense to me 
And at the very least, it's fun to think about life that way. And so if that's the case, then I would assume the reason we would want to play this video game of life chosen from some alternate parallel universe would be as we want to experience everything that this life has to offer. And I think that that culmination of experiences is that it's like the duality. You can't have light without dark. You can't have sweet without bitter. You can't have pleasure without pain. And so I think we come here to experience these things in life. And I think that altering our consciousness within this realm layers on top of that and it diversifies your experience. And, you know, Joe Dispenza's work comes to mind where he, you know, I like Joe Dispenza's work and he really layers on the quantum model, the quantum physics model onto our reality and kind of really speaks to the observer is affecting the real our reality and the double slit experiment. You know, the observer is what causes, as far as we can tell, a wave to collapse into a particle. If there's no observer, the particle remains a particle. So if that's the case, our mind is affecting this reality. And what we think about affects, at the very least, how we feel. And if what we think about, if, if how... If what we think about affects how we feel and how we feel affects how we behave, which also kind of circles back and affects how we think, it is this like feedback loop of changing your own reality and modifying your consciousness to do so, I think is a logical thing. I think that psilocybin mushrooms, as an example, you know, going back to Joe Dispenza, he famously says neurons that fire together, wire together. So when you're learning a new skill, you're wiring new neuro pathways, new electrical pathways within your brain. Neurons are making connections that have not connected before. And where we have habits, you have neurons that are wired together and those electrical, that, that firing takes place kind of by default because you already have these neurological pathways. And it's this ruddedness we get in life where you kind of are the same personality you think the same thoughts and as Dispenza says you create the same personal reality well disrupting that through modifying how you feel through ingesting some sort of chemical whether it's natural or synthetic does change how you feel and now causes you to wire new neuro pathways and with psilocybin and there's a lot of therapy taking place and psilocybin's being decriminalized in a lot of states. Um, and that's a newer growing movement. But I've heard people speak to like psilocybin use as kind of, if you think about your mind in terms of like a, a ski slope and where you have had prior thoughts and experiences or you experience something, you have a thought that is in response to that experience in life. You have neurons that wire together and that's kind of like a path going down the ski slope and there's tracks there. And so by default, you're more prone to fall down a path that you've already been down before or have a thought that is going to fire with neurons that are already wired together. 
And the act of doing psilocybin mushrooms is kind of resetting that slope so that you can freely think new thoughts or process new things about your life and wire new neuro pathways. And so it's this powerful chemical, a natural chemical, uh, chemically induced like mental reset. So I, I describe actually psilocybin use for me personally as defragmenting my mental hard drive. Where like if you eat a, a large dose of psilocybin, so much to the point where you're laying down with your eyes closed, it's in a very short period of time, a couple minutes or a few hours, you can do an enormous amount of process, mental processing, kind of moving information around in your head, reorganizing your thoughts, processing your experiencing experiences from a neutral place and a different emotional state, allowing you to think about things differently. And if you think about things differently, you feel differently about them. And now you're changing your reality. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, you have thought about it basically. <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah. But, to, but you don't generally talk to complete strangers across the internet about it. Have you, I mean, or do you, is this the first time you're having these kind of conversations or? You I'll have these conversations uh, from time to time. They'll come up organically throughout the world. So for me, um, in making videos and posting them on Twitter, I have expanded my conversational reach and it's, led me to podcasts like with you. And what is very interesting is, is so I'll make these five to 20 minute rants on Twitter. I will think about a topic. I will process the thought for a few moments or a few days, and then I'll articulate that, that thought. Right. But in a conversation and what I found is the podcasts are actually very difficult uh, because I'm formulating the the thought live while I'm being asked a question live, so I don't really have time to think about it. So it is it is interesting, but these are definitely conversations that I have had and things that I have thought about, especially as a result of I don't know the unconventional life that I've lived. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, can can you can you touch on that the unconventional life that that's twice that you've used that that saying? Yeah, uh, and you know share what you are happy to share. I. I I don't want to pry, but no, there's yeah, something no there's something in there. Um, so my parents, uh, hardworking, honest, good people. My dad is a licensed architect, a licensed structural engineer, and a licensed general contractor. So you could say high achievers. Uh, my mother, a doctorate degree in sociology, stepfather, a doctorate degree in psychiatry. Um. And because I was exposed to the rhetoric or the dialogue around all the pharmaceuticals in the world at a very young age and at a very young age, also, my mother went back to college and she pursued a doctorate degree. So as she was going to school to acquire her doctorate degree in sociology, we would take family ski trips and drive from California to Utah or whatever and uh, have like these deep philosophical conversations. And so I was exposed to some some pretty, I don't know, advanced conversation for being a kid at a very young age, which helped me to kind of think outside of the box and then being exposed to 
I don't know, a family that did everything right by the book, if you will, suffered tremendously from, in hindsight, now I look back, it was just absolute government lies, fiat garbage food, and a bunch of poisonous fucking drugs, honestly. And so, you know, I was probably, I was talking to my wife about this. I was 10 or 11 years old. I was walking to school. I was in fourth or fifth grade. The first time I can ever remember having a conscious thought of of like consciously missed questioning the system, questioning how credible the pharmaceutical industry was, questioning like is the guy, how does like it just and I don't even know how or why, but I just remember just kind of questioning the government and just the whole system. And actually, I, that was also very shortly followed up later with like an enormous fear around modifying my consciousness through the use of drugs and then living outside of this norm in being kind of ostracized from society. Cause at that time too, we had a dare officer dare to keep kids off of drugs. This like police officer would come to the school and tell us how terrible drugs were and whatnot. And yeah. And so I really questioned the system at a young age. And by the time I was in middle school, then I was uh, around kids who were smoking weed. Cause at that time, that's when kids get into cigarettes and weed and whatever. And I saw kids smoke weed and they didn't do all of the stuff that the dare officers told me they would be doing, right? And so by the time I was 15, I think I was 15 the first time I tried cannabis. Um, yeah, and at that time I had developed opinions, you know, for about society and the drug industry. And I kind of could see that these pharmaceutical companies were heavily incentivized to get you to take their drugs because that's how they made money. And so... Yeah, I don't know. I started smoking weed and selling weed in high school. Um, I had an issue with school. Like, why am I going to go home and do a bunch of homework if I can pass your tests? Like, let's do some basic arithmetic. I can do the arithmetic. I can pass the tests. The requirement should be met. But if I got to go home and just do a bunch of homework, like you're programming me to be a slave. And at a, as, as a 15-year-old, I saw that. And so, yeah, I had a hell of a time in high school because... I was ditching school, smoking weed, having a good time, you know, intelligent enough to pass the tests. I understand the curriculum, you know, and so I really rebelled. Um, yeah. And so I dropped out of high school. I didn't complete my senior year. I took the proficiency exam. I exited high school. I started working. Uh, I got a job at a Toyota dealership and I sold cars for a few years in my early 20s. Um and then I got invited to Northern California to trim weed by a friend I went to high school with who knew everyone knew I liked weed. Like there was no question about that. And so, yeah, I'm 24 years old. I came to Northern California and hit a trim scene and uh, worked the harvest and hand manicured some pounds uh, and never left. I've been here since then. And so when I say I've lived an unconventional life, I have because it was actually difficult in a lot of ways. I went against the grain. I have lived in hiding. You know, one of the things that's very interesting is having conversations like this or sharing things about my life because essentially from the ages of 15, I don't know, to 35, even with legal cannabis in the state of California, 
if I get pulled over and I have cannabis, like I have to prove to the cops that I'm in lawful possession. I got, hey, here's my license. All it. it's like, yeah, I've basically lived in hiding as a, an attempt to not, you know, have any, I don't know, legal issues or any blowback. And, um, yeah, so I've had to pay a royal price for that. Like I have, you know, as a result, like I said, I, I couldn't get a 30 year fixed mortgage on a house. Like there's a lot of perks and benefits in life that I have not had in lieu of having other ones. You know, I've had an, an enormous amount of freedom in a lot of ways. And so it's been a fair exchange. And I think at this point in my life, like I'm, we're moving out of that era of cannabis prohibition so many people publicly smoke a lot of cannabis who are not idiots that i think people generally are they're losing that stigma and our society and our culture is less adverse to cannabis um yeah and so there's something too i will say the last thing i'll say on that one there's an ethos or there's a lot of parallels within cannabis and bitcoin because the the ethos is, is fuck you. I don't give a fuck about your government implemented bullshit rules. We're going to do what we want, right? You can't stop me from wanting to trade fairly or not being debased or stolen from. And you can't stop me from wanting to grow a plant if I want to grow that plant. And so, yeah, it's a counterculture a little bit. And like, it's a counterculture that wins also that I like, I like that, you know, cannabis won. like you can't stifle, you can't stomp it out and you can't stomp out someone's desire to not be stolen from or debased. So, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the work that you do. Um, geek out a little bit on the, the process, like ha the, the huge, the plants that, uh, you know, you're yeah. in front of at the moment. But they obviously start out very small. What, what's the what's the what's the cycle here? How, how does it all how does it all come yeah. together? Um, well, all plants start from seeds. And so what's been taking place for the last, I don't know, long time, really thousands of years, is we've been breeding cannabis plants. You're taking female plants and male plants that you like the genetic characteristics of, and you're breeding those plants together. So we have isolated certain strains or cultivars uh, that have characteristics that we want. We're cultivating to get those characteristics. Like we want the plant to produce a lot of flower as opposed to a lot of leaf material. You might be wanting the plant to produce a lot of THC versus a lot of CBDC. I can produce a plant that essentially almost has zero THC and a lot of CBDC, or I can produce a plant that has a lot of THC and almost no CBD. And that's just going to be strain specific. It's going to be as a result of the genetics. And so when you get a genetic that you want to cultivate and produce any amount of, uh, you would clone it. And so what we do is, is we have seed stock that actually I've isolated personally from seed. And there's a whole industry you can buy clones of plants that like are popular strains that people are familiar with. Um, I've done some basic pheno hunting where I've procured pedigree plant stock, like seeds from world-class cannabis breeders. And I have sprouted those seeds and I have grown those plants to completion and then isolated the ones that have characteristics that I like. 
And I have actually isolated it to one specific one, which is the one behind me. And it's a strain that is a sativa dominant high THC strain that has like uh pine and citrus hues to it and and it's uh purple in color so it's a very beautiful pungent high thc strain and every single plant in here is a clone off of what was one original seeds seedling essentially so i took a bunch of seedlings the one that i liked i took clones off of i kept the clones and then I grew a bunch of them out and then I took clones off of all of those. And now I have a crop with a thousand plants, a thousand and thirty plants behind me that are all genetically identical. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah. So we have mothers. There are stock plants. We at the right cuttings off of those stock plants. Um, When the cuttings are rooted, we then grow them up from six inches tall to about 24 inches tall. And then we change the photo period from 18 hours of light and six hours of dark, which is like the springtime, which will cause a plant to grow vegetatively. Uh, and then when it's the right size, we will induce flower by giving it 12 hours of dark and 12 hours of light. And then it'll flower for nine weeks until we harvest it. Uh, and then we trim off all of the leaf and we hand manicure flowers. And then we bulk wholesale those pounds of flour to a licensed distributor that then packages it by the eighth and takes it to retail dispensaries all throughout the state of California. All right. Okay. So sorry for really basic questions here. No, it's okay. Um, so the, the, the flour and the leaf leaves, uh, leaves, excuse me, are two different products. Correct. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. In, in what way to, you know, but sorry to be the, the hash. So the leaf is like the solar panel of the plants. It's what is going to where most of the photosynthesis is going to take place, where the plant is going to, it has stomata. It's going to release oxygen. It's going to bring in CO2 and it's going to use light, the photons it receives from the light to create energy. And so it transpires through the leaves and it photosynthesizes through the leaves the flower is like the reproductive organ of the plants. And so we want female plants because the female plant will grow the flower or the bud. And if there are male plants around, the female plant will get pollinated. And that bud is where the seeds are produced. And so we grow sensamia is what it's referred to. And that is seedless flower. And by growing seedless flower, you have this flower that has all of these, has all of the resin in the bud where it's, that's where most of the oil is uh, in the flower. And the oil is in the flower. I believe that if you have a pollinated flower that's producing seeds at the end of the season, that bud will fall to the ground. And it's like that the flower is like a little sack that, houses the seed to get it into the springtime so that the conditions can be right so that seed can sprout so it has all of these compounds the oil it's basically that's it's like uh i don't know like a caterpillar and like uh you know you have a yeah the caterpillar will emerge from this cocoon kind of or something like that you know and so yeah that the flower and the leaf are very different so the flower is the reproductive organ the flower is what we want to consume. It's more, most of the oil is. 
That's and what you we're want smoking. Produce a flower that is seedless. So I have so, no male plants in here. Right. So we're smoking the flower, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you're there every day, uh, I assume it's every day that you're in there and doing the videos. Oh yeah. It seems to be. Yeah. What What's your uh-huh. What's your work? Like you you you're going around. You're checking for what? Like you, you know what's the yeah, explain so, to us what you're doing in there. Uh, essentially, <clears throat> we have a fully climate-controlled cultivation environment. There's two ways that you can grow a, a plant, any plant. You could put one outside and let it grow naturally within you know, the forces of nature. You're going to have spring, summer, fall. The plant's going to change its life cycle throughout the year in an attempt to reproduce cannabis is an annual plant. So it's going to sprout in the spring and die at the end of the year. It's not a perennial. It doesn't live for multiple years. And so if you were going to grow cannabis outdoors, naturally, you would want to start it in the springtime at the right time of year where there's enough light for the plant to know it's spring and grow in a vegetative state until it starts flowering in the autumn when the light starts to decrease and so the plant will know that the season is changing and that it needs to produce seed otherwise its species will cease to exist right so in a in a fully controlled environment like we have here we're essentially playing god we control the 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 environment depending on what we're trying to induce within the plant so at the beginning of the life cycle with a, a plant what we'll do is is we'll have 18 hours of light versus the 12 hours of light for the flowering cycle. The plant will be very small. Um, we're going to run the temperatures and the, and the humidity and the feed ratio differently at the beginning of the life cycle towards the middle versus the middle and the end. So every day I come into the facility, depending on the day within the crop, I'm checking to make sure that all of the parameters are what I want for that part of the life cycle. And so as an example, at the beginning of the crop, I want it warmer and humid. Towards the middle of the crop, I'm starting to drop the temperatures and make it slightly drier. And towards the end of the crop, I'm going to make it even cooler and even drier to induce more of those flowering, the the. Yeah, because I'm changing the physi- physiology within the plant by changing the environment that the plant is within to coax certain things out of the plant. Are they standing? So, are they standing in soil, or are they standing in like some kind of hydroponic uh, setup? Uh, they're in cocoa fiber, so this is hydroponics. If you want, I can show you a little bit. The computer will move, but I can give you a little. Do you want to see? Yeah, go on. Find it down. Yeah. Get it. So, uh, yeah, right here we have. Yeah, one gallon pots of cocoa fiber hmm. in an irrigation system, and so you can see, yeah, eighty-four double-ended high-pressure sodium lamps, uh, and then we have a brain here that controls all of the equipment, and so yeah, we have this would be considered hydroponically grown crops a hydroponically grown crop uh low dose continuous feed fertilizer and a small grow medium this is the way that you would essentially cultivate any crop to get the fastest growing plants 
you know, because we are in a fiat paradigm and there is a, I, I feel like it's almost, there's this effect of the commoditization of everything. You know, Jeff Booth's work comes to mind. We're driving the cost of everything down to its marginal cost of production. Uh-huh. So we're all getting squeezed. I have, I have dollar denominated inflation in my cost of everything except for in the product that I produce. So I have a margin that's getting squeezed. And so as a result, you need to fight back against that by being more efficient. And so cannabis cultivators, I mean, really just production of anything over the last many years is God, dude, it's quite incredible how efficient we're all getting. Um, yeah, so it's just it's a fast way of cultivating crops. It's how you get the highest terpenes, the highest THC, the most resin content with the least energy production in the shortest amount of time and the largest yields. Yeah. But what part of this cycle are you in right now with these plants behind you? Uh, we are day like day 45. So we have 20 days left. Mm-hmm. Right now, they are in like full-blown ripening phase. The buds are swelling. It's quite pungent in here. That was going to be my question. So if like if just a dude walks in off the street like myself, and I'm, am I going to come in there, walk around with you, talking with you for about 20 minutes, half an hour, I'm, am I going to feel some kind of effect? Um. Yes and no. So... No, because you're not ingesting the cannabis. The cannabis needs to be combusted or it needs to be heated up. If you were to eat the oil, you need to heat it past a certain temperature for the oil to start to really become available so that the liver can process it and it and it becomes psychoactive um, or you have to smoke it. But there is an interesting thing that takes place when you're working with the crop because you have... So like we leaf the crop at days, day 21, three weeks into flower after the plant stretches from like 18 inches to almost five feet tall, depending on the strain, it goes it into bud set and we want to um, manicure it strategically to like bring light to some of the lower bud sites to get more flower development because I sell the flower, not the leaf. Um and so when you're leafing the plant or pruning it at that point in the life cycle, it's developed enough oil that the oil gets all over your skin. And people who don't consume any cannabis at all will get this euphoric feeling from just working with the plant. Um, I've heard a lot of people speak to that. Uh, yeah, so you wouldn't, unless you had oil on you, like a lot of it because you've been working in the canopy, or you smoked it, you wouldn't really feel a psychological effect from it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, the plant does have like a powerful presence. There is a metaphysical, I don't know, like, a, yeah, there's a powerful presence that the plant has. And maybe part of that is comes from, we just don't see a lot of it because we're coming out of an era of prohibition. Um but also, I just think that, you know, everything in our reality has a vibration to it, a frequency. It's like everything's alive, including the steel within this greenhouse. Like, 
all of it is moving. It's all oscillating at some frequency. There's there's like life within it all. Um, so yeah, I feel like the cannabis plant is like a, a wise, ancient, powerful plant, and you can feel its presence. That's cool, people, man. That's yeah. cool. And and what, so when you're walking around doing the doing the videos and you're brushing past the plants, it's like you yeah. know, you're you're at one with the plants and. And usually, and I don't know whether this is just the, uh, the 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 camera angle, but it looks as though you sometimes have the biggest split in your hands. Yes, I don't know. I are do. You, are, are you are you rolling like a one foot long split, or is that just the uh, the camera projection? No, I I roll uh, enormous. Here, I'll show you, you? quite large <laughs> joints. Uh, and the reason is is I'm very abundant in cannabis and it's super enjoyable to smoke uh you know a lot of people smoke well, I tobacco. You're not, isn't there a, a saying that you don't get high on your own supply it, it, does that not does that not apply uh yeah i think that that came that was uh or who think who was that was that biggie made that famous with his <laughs> 10 crack commandments i don't know if you're a crack dealer that would make sense i suppose but you know it's like uh ranchers that produce a bunch of beef of course they consume their own beef or like oh. if you have a vineyard why wouldn't you know if you are really passionate about wine yep you're gonna drink the wine you produce and so <laughs> yeah i um you know i enjoy smoking smoking is, is an enjoyable pastime activity you know people smoke hookah or tobacco other plant herbs too people have you can smoke um yeah so smoking cannabis is really enjoyable and there is a certain element too where because I am so inundated or I, my life is so full of cannabis, I don't really get super high, if you will, um, because I'm always around cannabis. I'm working with cannabis. My clothes smell like cannabis. I smoke it you know, often. And so it's enjoyable to smoke it. I actually also don't believe this might be controversial, but I'll just say it. I don't really believe that the smoking of the cannabis is is at all, or at the very least, it's not very harmful to my physiology. I know people, because I've been in Humboldt County for 15 years. This is the mecca of cannabis cultivation globally for the last 20, 30 years. 130,000 people live in Humboldt County and like the entire area, the whole economy, half I would say would be my guess, of the money that comes into Humboldt County and has for the last 20 years is as a result of cannabis. So I know people who have been growing cannabis for 30, 40 years. I know old timers that smoke bat joints all day long and have for 30 years that are running, that would run circles around most everyday average 25 year old unhealthy people in our fiat world because they're active and and the cannabis is doesn't have all these crazy gnarly chemicals like tobacco does um and you're also combusting and ingesting this oil that is extremely anti-cancerous and so yeah my lungs don't hurt as a result of smoking the cannabis uh and it's enjoyable yeah so i did i smoke fat joints all day long <laughs> How do you get them that big? So here, you can check it out. That's one. That's <laughs> oh, yeah, probably that. like, uh, I don't know, five grams, four grams. 
of like 30% THC cannabis. It, yeah. It, and so what paper are you rolling that in? Because usually you just get the, uh, the, the tiny little things. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not in this, yeah, in yeah. this world. Uh, I use rice papers. There's different kind of rolling papers. I like papers made out of rice. They're very thin. Uh, yeah. And I just grind up products and hand roll joints. It's like just, I don't know. It's like a cannabis cigar almost. <laughs> yeah. that you can inhale it. It makes you feel good instead of really sick. I don't know All if right. you've ever inhaled a cigar, but it'll make you nauseous as fuck. Yeah. The cannabis makes you feel really good. So, yeah. All right. Okay. Feel free to light up. Don't, 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 don't let me stop you because, uh, yeah, the, the next, well, the next thing we've got to cover is, you, know, you you touched on it. 2017 is when you started trying to learn about, you know, uh, the, uh, the boom bust cycle. And that's what led you to Bitcoin. Yes. Uh, but what I, what I love seeing in your videos, uh, it's as if, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure all of this happened for you before, <clears throat> but when you're walking around and you're talking, it's like a stream of consciousness and it's like all of the sats are dropping at the same time. It's like, bam, 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 and another thing, bam, bam, bam. And this is, so how long, it, what resources have helped you along your way and formed your opinion? And why, why did you feel I've got to share this information now? Good question. Um, Well, so like I said, I've lived kind of, I've had an unconventional life. I don't know, you know, not everybody can say that they dropped out of high school as a result of, you know, getting a bunch of shit for liking weed, then become a professional cannabis producer who then becomes licensed and then pivots their business model. I so I don't, I live in a rental now. I don't own a property. I don't want to own a home. I don't want to own a cannabis facility. And so I've kind of had this unique set of circumstances um, that you could say predisposed me to seeing the value within Bitcoin and having such a large incentive. So I'm actually, for somebody who has lived, I don't know, kind of as an outlaw for my entire life or adult life, I'm not a huge risk taker. I don't really enjoy taking large risk. I'm quite conservative and very thoughtful about how I do things, you know? Um, so I really needed to understand because I'm not a huge risk taker, the money that I had earned to purchase the property that I had. Um, and I, you know, I worked really hard to get that money. It wasn't, it wasn't fast, easy money, if you will. And so, I had a huge incentive to understand what forces were at play that my money was at risk because of, or my economic energy, if you will. I had all of this economic surplus, all of this life force went into producing one specific product that I sold into the marketplace. I earned less than I consumed. I then saved up all this capital, deployed this capital for an entrepreneurial endeavor, if you will, and then got hit with a tornado of all sorts of uncertainty. And so 
I had the largest incentive that I could have at that time in my life to understand what was taking place. So my personality is to go quite deep into something. I like to do few things, but I like to do them in great depth. Um, so my personality uh, kind of really created a circumstance in my life where I had a very high incentive to understand at the highest level in which I could based upon what information I had access to, what forces I was contending with. And at that time, after, you know, being aware of the real estate, boom bust cycles, the economic bull run, listening to some gold bugs, understanding, you know, easy money and cheap liquidity and money printing, you know, as I started to really think about this stuff more, and then when I got exposed to Bitcoin, it immediately clicked with me that you that we have something. And at the time, this was, you know, Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum and all these alts and all these ICOs were ripping and roaring. So it was definitely there was a lot of noise, but it made perfect sense to me immediately that you have something here that's going to either go up forever or they're going to squash it out and we're going to have this perpetual, I don't know, honeypot of like greed and lies and deceit that like one sociopathic group of people will move into after another. Right. And so it definitely made sense that this is going to change everything. Um, but it wasn't too clear at that time what the probability of it succeeding was. And so, but looking at the world through the lens of Bitcoin, and this was pre-Jeff Booth, this was pre-Michael Saylor. So I didn't have the words to describe like I could articulate as effectively now, but I understood that commoditization was going to make my life harder. I understood that jurisdictional competition meant that Oklahoma, for example, which then later did, could come online who has less taxes, cheaper energy, lower cost of living, and they're much easier to deal with. They're much more business friendly. You can get a license in Oklahoma for a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the time that you can in California. And so the long in the long term, when we're on a national stage and decriminalization or rescheduling is taking place nationally, I'd be competing across state lines on a national level and I had essentially an existential crisis. And that is the commodity that I'm producing is going to go down in value while the cost of living is going up. And so very quickly, within a couple of months of being exposed to Bitcoin, and at that time, I think I'd maybe watched like a one hour documentary. It was one of the first ones that came out that describes like how having essentially by how having a scarcity in money, we're going to create all this abundance and everything else. So it clicked immediately. And fortunately for me, the general understanding of the forces that I was contending with, with all of my resources tied up and on the line, uh, it helped me to come up with the beginning stages of what I think is now kind of the superior strategy of own a bunch of Bitcoin and essentially nothing else as an investable asset. 
I think that you're the most free. You're the most liquid. You're the most like economically impervious. Um, yeah. So well, kind of a messy answer there maybe, but yeah. So that it's just contending with the reality of like a very quickly a product producing a product that's losing value so fast. I had this interesting circumstance where I'm watching the product that I produce go down in value very quickly. And I'm seeing all this regulatory uncertainty. I got a full blown lesson in like counterpart. It was a tornado of a little bit of every kind of counterparty risk that you can have. And being very conservative, I wanted to divulge or divest myself from that. And so, so difficult to do because I thought it was my dream come true when I was licensed. Yeah. I remember the day I got my license. I was so happy and also like worried because I, I intuitively knew it was a bad business. Yeah. So what um what what kind of uh resources were you leaning on going into like 2020? Uh YouTube, actually. So I'm new to Twitter. I fired up a Twitter account a couple of years ago. Um, and didn't really use it. It wasn't intuitive to, for me as far as the way that the platform is formatted. Uh, as a cannabis producer, I've been more inclined, like the format for Instagram is really good for somebody who's producing a product that you want to look at photos of. Mm. So in cross-referencing other producers in the business, I can go onto their Instagram page and I can look at photos of their facility and figure out how they're doing things. And so Twitter wasn't very intuitive to me. And so I didn't really use Twitter. So I solely relied on YouTube and audiobooks. And because I do a lot of manual labor, I mean, I'm a farmer, quite literally, it's quite tech. It's techie, you know, like we have computers that control all of the stuff and whatnot, but I am a farmer. I move stuff around all day. And so uh, I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. And essentially from 2017 and on, anything that I could get my hands on on YouTube that was halfway credible about Bitcoin, I just devoured. So I've listened to just basically nonstop YouTube. Like, actually, I was on the High Hash Rate podcast and they asked me, they're like, hey, what kind of music do you listen to? And I haven't been asked that for a while. It kind of caught me off guard a little bit. And I was like, ah, I don't know. And every great once in a while, I'll listen to classical music if I'm stressed out or, but it's very rare. I listen to podcasts. I listen to Bitcoin podcasts on 1X. And so that's how I have, that's how I've learned everything about Bitcoin is just listening to all of the greats, you know? And yeah. And so when Sailor hit the scene, fuck, dude, I do, my mind exploded when Sailor hit the scene. When Sailor hit the scene, I started selling off everything else that I held that had economic energy into it, in it, and went all into Bitcoin. He brought a layer of credibility to Bitcoin, and I, I would only assume that a significant, notable percentage of people who, I don't know, laser-eyed thirteen percenters or whatever that hold nothing but Bitcoin, uh, would credit Sailor as being the catalyst that like pushed him over the edge. Yeah, when Sailor hit the scene, I sold all my gold, all my silver, my extra vehicle, like everything. I panic sold all of my stuff. Like, oh man, we could wake up tomorrow. Turkey could sell, you know, in the famous words of Sailor, you could wake up tomorrow and Turkey could have sold off $2 billion, $3 billion worth of gold and bought Bitcoin. And now the price is a hundred grand. 
And so, yeah, a bunch of YouTube and a bunch of audiobooks. Jeff Booth, Safedine, those are the big ones. Booth's work, it's just, gosh, the understanding there. We live in a deflationary world. We're driving prices down on everything. And you can't have an inflationary monetary system where the money is lent into existence as debt against assets within the marketplace. It requires prices to go up on everything while we're fundamentally pushes, pr pushing prices down on everything. That's my life, dude. <laughs> if you're if you're in if you're in the states, I can use California as an example. I don't know what minimum wage is, probably 15, 17 bucks an hour or something, right? And so if my cost of living is going up on average, let's say 10% a year on the last five years, real cost of living, not CPI, not box starch, not drywall, not streaming Netflix, but the real stuff that we need, energy, gasoline, meat, I don't know, real food, healthcare. So my cost of living, if your cost of, okay, if your cost of living is going up 10% and you're on minimum wage and your minimum wage increases by 5%, you're getting poorer. That's real wage deflation. You have the optical illusion of getting more per hour. You are getting more per hour, but your cost of living is going up at a faster rate. So you have this moving target. Well, as a cannabis producer, I have increase in my cost of living. And then I have a decrease in my dollar denominated wages. So it's like the most extreme where I am quite literally making less money each year, but my cost of living is going up. And it's just a result of commoditization. Where you have a large margin, you have a large incentive for entrepreneurs and capital to move into that sector of the marketplace and meet the demand with supply. It's your, you, as you increase the supply, you're driving the price down and you're, you're, it's like Bezos. I think Bezos famously said, your margin is my opportunity. And so where you have a big margin, you have a huge incentive for us to attack that margin up the supply, drive the margin down. So it's good for everybody that cannabis is becoming less expensive because people who want to consume it now get it for less money. But there's an, I have an existential crisis as a commodity producer. And so without being on a Bitcoin standard, I'd have a real problem. And so what I think is that by being on a Bitcoin standard, a commodity producer, their balance sheet, their treasury reserve assets is appreciating at a rate which is fast enough to counteract or cancel out the wage deflation that's taking place. So if I lose my ability as a cannabis producer to produce a surplus, when I generally run the numbers in my head, the surplus that I've already produced and saved into Bitcoin will have appreciated at a fast enough rate where I can essentially survive the demise of the fiat broken paradigm where you have two fundamentally opposing forces. You can't have prices go up in a world where we're driving prices down. Like 100,000 years ago, some caveman made a net. And he caught a, like 100 fish. Instead of one fish, he caught with a pole. That's deflation. That's capitalism. You will never be able to stifle out capitalistic forces. And you'll never be able to stifle out humanity's desire to make more for less. And while we have an inflationary monetary system... 
those forces are shredding our reality. They're bifurcating our society. They're decentivizing the non-property owning class from giving a fuck about anything. It's it's shortening people's time horizons. What is the heightening their their time preference? Um, changing the moral fabric of our culture. Like it's just wrecking everything. And at the same time, Bitcoin is beautifying and fixing everything. And so without Bitcoin, I'd be a little depressed. I'd have, you know, a monetary conundrum. I would probably hold some rental properties and some real estate. Um, I would be generally less optimistic, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot there. There is. So why the videos? Why did you feel as though you started needed to uh, you know create some content and put your thoughts out on the internet for the plebs? Um, also, uh, it's multifaceted, handful of reasons. Um, as somebody who's lived as an outlaw or in hiding for the last I don't know twenty years of my life, I've been adverse to socializing digitally. Um, I'm not a big risk taker, you know, and so I've traditionally early on, I was adverse to putting photos of my cannabis up, even if I was lawful on a, a state level. Um, yeah, so I've kind of I've I've been limited to the relationships that I have in the physical world or the people who I have met in the physical world within what is kind of a small community. Um and as I've become more enthralled and obsessed with Bitcoin and the future implications of Bitcoin, and then having grown up, having some of the conversations, some of the philosophical conversations that I had with my family, some of the conversations we had about society. You know, my mother ended up teaching at a private university, intro to sociology, women's studies and gender studies. So <laughs> at like 10 years old, I'm listening to my mother talk about gender roles. And so to watch this whole, I don't know, I would call it a fiat induced detachment from reality take place in our world at large has been quite interesting. And so, yeah, I think about all of this stuff. And in my own little world, I've said this in some of my videos, like, I feel like I just run around just ranting to the same 15 people all day long, 10 of which are like, dude, you need to make videos. You need to make videos. You need to be on YouTube. And I'm quite busy. I have this existential fiat crisis. Like I work quite hard. I don't drink any alcohol. I don't do any drugs. I don't party. I don't watch football. I don't go golfing. I literally spend quality time with my family. I work a mile from where I live. Um, you know, and I grow cannabis, you know, I'm a very present hard work. It's like I say, I'm always working, but I'm always available because I can kind of move my schedule around. So I couldn't for, for the life of me, wrap my mind around how on earth I was going to make YouTube videos talking about Bitcoin. There's like a hundred guys who are epic, who are making YouTube videos talking about Bitcoin. They can edit videos. They got sexy shorts on all the platforms. Dude, they're epic podcasters. Like in my mind, I just couldn't wrap my mind around like where, where do I have a place doing that? 
but I was heavily encouraged by people like, yeah, you, you know, you and your zingers, you're a little, you know, you should be sharing this stuff. And so I would say the tipping point, and also I'm quite bashful, honestly, and shy. It's not like me to, I don't know, want to talk publicly. You know, I've always had a lot of attention on me. I've seemed to be, you know, as a kid, I had a lot of attention. A lot of the parents, you know, thought I had a lot of potential or or whatever, but I was always reserved. Um, Yeah, so I went to Pacific Bitcoin. It was a last minute decision, essentially kind of out of a result of going a little stir crazy, where I'm just like, look, I need to meet other Bitcoiners. I'm obsessed with this thing. This is probabilistically going to demonetize the entire world. This is the biggest deal in human fucking history. I need to align with more people who understand this. And so last minute, you know, I bought a ticket, went to Pacific Bitcoin, and I met a handful of great people. And it was just a powerful experience. And I was talking with a few heavy hitters, and we were at the VIP party. It's a two-day event. It's Saturday and Sunday, or Friday and Saturday. Anyways, and so we were at the after party, and I was talking with Matt Cratter, and with Bitcoin University and two other TradFi guys who were pretty smart. I don't, you know, I don't know much about these individuals, but we had an hour-long conversation. And the next day, when I was talking to Matt at the conference, you know, I had mentioned like, hey, I have friends who are like trying to tell me to make YouTube videos. I can't really wrap my mind around it. And I was commending him and thanking him for his work. And he mentioned he's like, you were pretty entertaining talking last night at you know dinner. Like you. You definitely could make some videos and coming from somebody who I respect so much, that was quite powerful for me. And it was almost this moment of shit. Now I got to try like this guy who was like secret. I have this one sided friendship with this individual who I don't even watch talk. I've watched. I just listen to their videos. Right. You know, because you don't see his face when he's talking and he's just educating the world. It was like, oh, like, I don't know if this. Like there was a little pressure because of that. Like, oh, now I got to try. Like, you know, he's encouraged me to do it. I should, I should at least give it a try. And then what the Middle East, the conflict in the Middle East in Israel with Gaza broke out when I got home and I have a two-year-old daughter. She just turned two. So she's close to two at the time. And that just wrecked me, dude. Absolutely wrecked me. Some of the images looking at the conflict and spending so much time in the Bitcoin rabbit hole, going around for the last two years, literally all day long, every day of my life, explaining to the people around me why Bitcoin changes all of these issues and how your political opinions are all fucking wasted time. Like all of this is crap if we don't solve the problem with the money. Like look at the incentives. Look at this. And so having that understanding, at least that's what I believe. And it's all probabilistic. Like I could wake up tomorrow and everything that I ever thought to be real or true could be totally wrong. And I'd have to accept that reality. So what the fuck do I know? Right. I don't know. So but it's at least what I believe. So I have this belief system and I believe that I, you know, and I align with other people who have this belief system that if you can solve the problem with the money and we can have this metaphysical property that's fucking magic, honestly, that you can't take from somebody. The incentive is now to peace. And we have this conflict breaking out. And I'm looking at images on my smartphone in my hand of dead children. And so that was just what pushed me over the edge and and was the final catalyst for me to like confront the fear of like 
putting myself out there because I do think it's hardwired into us to be reserved and to not want to publicly speak or not want to share your thoughts because if people don't like you, you know, our ancestors who weren't liked, got they got ostracized and some of them died alone in the woods, right? So it's hardwired into us to, to want to be liked and accepted. And so, yeah, there was fear there and that, and also it kind of goes back to, and then what the fuck am I going to do? Like, I can't edit a video. Dude, the most editing I've done is to put laser eyes on my profile pic <laughs> with an app that's called Laser Eyes, right? So I don't have time to edit a video, let alone to figure out how to do it. Like, I'm on a fiat treadmill trying to make sure I don't have to spend my Bitcoin if I can avoid it, right? So I just started ranting, you know? It's like... um and I do, I'm aware that I live an unconventional life that you could say at the very least with m most of your average population is entertaining to a certain degree. Like most people don't get to see cannabis farms or some guy smoke a four gram joint, <laughs> you know? So it was just, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of just started. And you know, actually too, it's real as fuck. Like this is my life. Like there's no show. It's not a show. I'm not trying to get a sponsorship. I don't have a YouTube channel, although I will start uploading to YouTube. I'm not doing this so that I can get a sponsorship or tell you the new Bitcoin news. I just wanted to throw my opinion into the mix, if you will, and just connect with other people who align with what I'm saying or at the very least what I'm thinking about. Um, and it also feels like I'm participating uh, as opposed to passively and defensively watching things unfold in the world around me. Although I do believe that the most revolutionary thing that you could ever do to defund plunder and violence and vote for peace and consent and prosperity is to sell all your cuck buck denominated shitty assets and buy Bitcoin. And so that's very active and I've done that and I can't do any more of that. I have nothing left to, left to sell to buy Bitcoin with, right? So the only thing that I could further do to contribute, even if it's in an infinitesimal small way, was just share my rants, you know, uh, which was a little bit hard, but it seems to, it's working, you know, and yeah. And so, like I said, the podcasts are actually hard for me and I, and I honestly, I can't listen to them because I'm sensitive to sounding stupid. And maybe that's because I publicly smoke a bunch of weed and who wants to sound like an idiot, right? Nobody wants to sound like a fucking idiot. But it's it's working these thoughts out in conversation while you're being recorded. And it also kind of goes back to like, I, I kind of, I care so much about the future and about helping if I can have a positive world for the kids, for my kids that I can't really be too concerned about whether I look dumb or say something stupid or whatever. But with the videos, I can formulate a thought, which is fascinating to me. And I can hit that little flow state, share my thought. And then now I'm connecting with other people who resonate with that, which has actually been quite therapeutic for me because it's, even though I know other people are thinking the same things, I'm connecting with those people now. And that's powerful. Yeah, uh, it's huge. 
And that's why I, you know, I'm a big proponent uh, of people going to their local meetups or getting to the conferences because it changed my life as well. You know, I, it, for me, I'd sat there as lonely as all hell as the only Bitcoiner in town, the only one in my family, and, uh, the only yeah. one in my friend group, lonely as, lonely as fuck. Uh, and that's why I was excited totally. when, when Orange Pill app came around and, uh, and Mateo actually launched Orange Pill app at Pacific Bitcoin, the first one. Um, so I'm, you, I think you went along to the second one, maybe. Uh, yeah, I was but, 2023. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, you know, I shill it on the unashamed, unashamed, unashamed shill of, uh, of Orange Pill app and, and getting people, Bitcoiners together uh, so we can have these conversations, man. And, yeah, yeah. And by the way, like the, the imposter syndrome never goes away. You know, I'm four years into the podcast, almost to the day. That's totally right. <laughs> you still suffer. So yeah. And because Bitcoin moves so fast, I mean, how the hell are you supposed to keep up with it? And now we're all, you, you know, shouting about ordinals and st stamps and timestamp and inscriptions and we need roll-ups and filters and CTVs and like, what? are these guys saying like you know i don't understand any of this and you try and get yeah. on top of it and before just as you're getting on top of that something else comes in and so yeah it's um incredible space glad you're glad you're a part of it glad you're now putting out your videos i've got a lot of enjoyment from them i sit there chuckling away and i i see a lot of yourself uh in myself when i was going through all these thought processes you know you know, when you wake up at 3 a.m. with a laser eyes on, you say, I get it. I get it now. And you can't get back to sleep because everything's just fallen into place. Oh, it's broken because this, 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 and this, and this. And it's straight back to the yep. money. Every single time. Totally. Every single time. All yeah. right, let, let's wrap it up. If you had one last orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? I would say, ah, I would say Elon Musk. I, but I believe he's already orange pilled and I believe he's playing a game, honestly. So, well, let's say he's not orange pilled. I think that when he understands, which I do think he does, that you can have a truly decentralized, free and open ledger and that the societal implications of that are the most profound out of any other thing, any technology, ideology, anything that we could implement. I think he would integrate what he's working on into the Bitcoin network, you know, what am I trying to say here? So for example, I, I like Neuralink, just all of the large tech companies, like Sailor says this, you know, what is it? 5 billion, there's one company who answers the question 5 billion people ask. There's one company that makes the phones that 3 billion people use. There, you know, you have these large tech platforms that have so much influence and so much market share. And there are these large central entities that have become so big due to the fiat apparatus. But they are co-optable. 
they are they are mechanisms that could be used to enslave humanity but at the same time they are technological advancements that are capable of liberating humanity and so neurolink as an example a brain chip allowing someone who's blind to now see that's a really good thing if it's not co-optable if some if you could make it so that some sociopath or some group of sociopath megalomaniac narcissistic narcissistic fucking creep balls can't co-opt it and use it to gain total control then we need that that liberates humanity from a lot of the woes of dealing with the forces and the challenges of contending with nature or this reality right and so if you could take Neuralink or Tesla, and you could make it so that these technologies are truly decentralized and they're open source, then they're a force for real good. But if that doesn't happen, then they're a force for total control. Hey, everybody gets up. Here's your fucking brain chip and get fucked with your 12 words. I know what they are because I just put a brain chip in your head, right? And so... Yeah, I would say Elon Musk, if he understands Bitcoin and can op and, and integrate in some sort of fashion, I, and I'm not a tech guy, I don't know how you would do it, but I believe it's possible where you could open source all the tools or something. I would then have trust for the digitization of everything. You know, I'm analog a little bit. I'm not a huge risk taker. I've lived as an outlaw. Eight years ago, all of my peers used to use burner phones, even though that they had nonprofit organizations and were legal within the state of California and paying taxes on the crop that they produced. These are farmers who produce a crop and sell it in the marketplace. These people used to use burner phones. I had burner phones, disposable phones, because I don't want to have my text messages sit in the database to be algorithmically sorted by some supercomputer, some AI that's going to fucking put people into a gulag someday right and so i have enormous mistrust for large tech platforms and as a result of bitcoin though and the more and more i think about the implications of bitcoin the less concerned about all that i become because i see the incentive vortex and how this is just gobbling everything up and i see how it's actually truly possible for humanity to own something that's digital. Bitcoin is a public utility that all of humanity owns. No central authority owns the Bitcoin network. And it's a network that provides private property rights to anybody who can access it. And the existence of that makes me okay, or at least believe with my limited farmer understanding that it is possible to have stuff like Neuralink and have it be possible to have that and still be free at the same time. That's what I think. And so I think if, if Elon Musk was orange pilled, that's important. He has Twitter. I think Michael Saylor's orange check comes to mind. We should have an orange check. Let's clean this up. 
You know, what does Taylor say? Satoshi brought life to a dead realm. He lit a fire in cyberspace. It's a big deal, right? And so conservation of energy, physics, these laws all apply in the digital realm now. So I, but goes back to, I believe Elon, he's, I believe he's benevolent and I believe he understands Bitcoin. And I believe that the whole Dogecoin thing is a total psyop. And it, and I think he's buying time till he determines, this is at least my theory, until he determines that the Bitcoin is past like at the tipping point or it's truly indestructible. And also once again, though, doesn't matter though because the incentives are so strong he's fucking buying bitcoin at the end of this year because if he doesn't a competitive corporation will the accounting laws are changing it's all changing we're all capitulating into bitcoin yeah so i don't know i think elon though he's the one who needs the the orange pill if he's not already orange pilled all right yeah. mate. nice bullish yeah. rant as well to to end it all off with really appreciate it how can people, uh, is it just Twitter to come and find you? Is that the best place? Yeah, Eric V Stacks on Twitter. Um, yeah, I'm going to be uploading onto YouTube soon. That's also Eric V Stacks, but I still have a few things I'm working on with that. You hitting any conferences yeah. again? What's that? Are you going to hit any conferences? Yeah, I already have tickets for Tennessee. Uh, and I'm considering going to the having party in El Salvador in April. All right. Well, yeah. if anybody's going to those, go give Eric a big hug. Go say hi. Go and get yeah. a uh, a deep conversation going because uh, I've enjoyed every minute of this one. And like I said, I've been enjoying the videos. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing for Bitcoin. And I uh, hope to see many more of your videos coming, uh, coming out over the next six months or so. Yeah, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was nice talking with you. Take care, Eric. Yes, you too. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that one. And if you're not following Eric already, go and make sure you are following on Twitter and make sure if you're going to be in Madeira to go up and have a chat with him. Tap him on the shoulder, say hi, say thank you for everything he's done to you know onboard the, uh, the few people that he's managed to onboard already onto a, a Bitcoin standard or up their already existing knowledge or give them further conviction. This is just true pleb work. This is what we all need to be doing in our own tiny little way that we can add some kind of value to this ecosystem. And it just took him a selfie stick and a camera and to walk around his place of work. And he does, he does educate you about what's going on in the farm as well, which is, I find plebs love learning about other people's work and other people's lives because we're just curious people. And we want to know how things work, why they work, you know, what are those regulations that he's been talking about? How has it been, you know, completely overregulated and, and tried to be controlled? You know, we, we've got to have this information and see what's going on out there in different sectors and different parts of the world, different jurisdictions, so we can start piecing all of this together. Um, keep stacking. And uh, <laughs> I think it was Canute said. There's no point in having fuck you money if you don't say fuck you. So start thinking about, is your mindset ready for this next pump? Because the halving is coming. And if you do want to leave your fiat job, 
you, you, your stack might be in shape, but your mind might not be. So that's something else to, to consider working on as well. And there are a few people in this space that can help you. I've had them on the show. If you go back and find the episode with the, the hypnotists, uh, Andreas and Marie, an incredible interview, really very interesting. And I've been using them to help me with a few things. It's, it's great and it's pleb work, it's value for value. You can go find that interview with them. And Rob Brindid, who's here, he's going to be giving a talk on the kids stage. How, you know, why we think, how we think. And his book, uh, Mind Decentralized, is a great source as well. He's also been on the show and he has his own course that plebs have been using and plugging into. So go find those episodes, go reach out to those plebs, get yourself in shape for what's going to happen over the next 18 months or so. Make sure you're stacking all the way through. Swan Bitcoin in the US, Relay across Europe. Remember, it's spelled R-E-L-A-I. And use the code BITTEN when you're signing up uh, because you will get free $10 worth of Bitcoin with Swan and you'll save on commissions with Relay. Up your privacy. Look into CoinJoin services. WasabiWallet.io. It's all done by design right in front of your eyes. Bitbox02 is the place for you to go and find that hardware wallet if you do not have one and use that code BITTEN at checkout for 5% off. Mempool.space, go see the Bitcoin blockchain, go see the mempool, what's going on? Are you up to speed with the spam debate? This is the place to go and visualize it at least. Orange Pill app is where you're gonna find your people. And that's it. Make sure you're supporting the show on Fountain and come say hi in Madeira.